Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Last week was tough, friends, and today I'm going to bring you something a little lighter, a little more society hot gossip stuff. Dominique's 1983 trial is coming up next week, and I do appreciate all of your tender hearts. So this week we're going to do something a little lighter. We have the tale of two competing sisters and a hotel and a fortune at stake. A really famous hotel, the Beverly Hills Hotel. Today, it is the story of the Silberstein sisters, Muriel and Seema, and the revolution that takes place sister style. Dominic covers the saga titled Beverly Hills Coup, first published in Vanity Fair in February 1986. Let's investigate. The Beverly Hills Hotel, kind of a legendary place. CNN does a special on it a few years back, and I pulled this line just to give you an idea of the permanence and specialness of the Beverly Hills Hotel. Quote, back in the days when celebrity was worn with the elegance and grace of diamonds and mink, the Beverly Hills Hotel was where the stars played. W.C. Fields, Humphrey Bogart and the Rat Pack tippled at the bar. Catherine Hepburn did a backflip into the pool in her tennis clothes. And Elizabeth Taylor honeymooned in the bungalows out back six times. The Beverly Hills Hotel, known affectionately as the Pink Palace, is as old Hollywood as it gets. Joan Crawford regularly pulled up for lunch and a chauffeured Rolls Royce, the color of money. The Beatles slipped in through the back door for an after-hours dip in the pool. And Sidney Poitier danced barefoot in the lobby after winning an Oscar for Lilies of the Field. Over the years, Hollywood discovered that the hotel's original 21 bungalows made an ideal spot to write a screenplay, Neil Simon, have a secret affair, Warren Beatty, Prionette Benning, and recover from plastic surgery or a broken marriage. The band Eagles even paid homage to the Beverly Hills Hotel within their 1978 album, Hotel California. Hotel California wins the Grammy for Record of the Year in 1978, and the Beverly Hills Hotel is pictured on the famous cover of that album. Eagles frontman Don Henley says the song Hotel California is about the journey from innocence to experience. That's all. We were all middle-class kids from the Midwest. Hotel California was our interpretation of the high life in L.A. And so it goes. Before the Beverly Hills Hotel was a hotel on Sunset Boulevard, it was a polo field where all the rich players would practice. There is no Beverly Hills, it's only land. And in May 1912, a man named Stanley Anderson, who was managing the Hollywood Hotel at the time, will convince his very rich mother, Margaret, to build a hotel. Stanley Anderson will design a hotel out in the middle of nowhere. He's building a hotel in a city that does not yet exist. But there it is, a Mediterranean revival building just waiting for what will be the town of Beverly Hills. The polo players get replaced by studio bosses and film stars. In its earliest days, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, Charlie Chaplin, 
Buster Keaton, Rudolph Valentino, and Will Rogers will all flock to this new destination and ultimately build homes nearby, which in turn makes the Beverly Hills Hotel the prime occupant of Sunset Boulevard. Beverly Hills will establish itself as a city, as a town around the hotel. The hotel is so instrumental in the development of Beverly Hills The Beverly Hills adopts the hotel's name for the city that is forming around it. So the Beverly Hills Hotel is there. It goes through a few changes. But in 1941, the vice president of the Bank of America, a man named Hernando Courtright, will buy the Beverly Hills Hotel. He and his buddies, actually. He has some Hollywood heavies, including Irene Dunn, Loretta Young, and Harry Warner. They all go in together, buy the hotel. Hernando Courtright will create the Polo Lounge, which becomes the hot spot in the city. The Beverly Hills Hotel will acquire its pink color in 1948 when Courtright paints the building. There's a new wing, the Crescent Wing, that is built. A lot going on. But the Beverly Hills Hotel, by the early 50s, is now known as the Pink Palace. Everything goes well enough until 1954 when Ben Silberstein enters the picture. Ben Silberstein is a Detroit real estate magnate and a hotel tycoon. And Ben is going to take his wife and daughters out to sunny California for a little trip. They are staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Ben's daughters, Muriel and Seema, seven years between them. Muriel is about 20. At this time, Seema is about 13. And Muriel, in a move that only a doted-upon daughter can pull effectively, says to her father, Daddy, if you want me to be interested in your business, you should buy this hotel. And Ben Silberstein does, just right from Hernando Courtright, for what was the outrageous sum of $5.5 million. Now, the plan is that Hernando Courtright who is connected into the Hollywood scene, he has been the owner and general manager for a number of years, would stay on for five years as president and general manager. Again, Muriel is 20, Seema is 13, and now in 1954, they are both co-owners of the Beverly Hills Hotel. Each girl receives from Daddy Ben 48% of the hotel shares. There's 4%, if you're doing the math, that is remaining left over, which is the complication part of this tale. So there are problems right from the start. Ben Silberstein and Hernando Courtright do not like each other. There is a distinct style difference between the two, not only in the way they want the hotel managed, but also in their personal styles. Fashion-wise, they clash. These are both very rich, very powerful men, but there is a strange relationship between them. Things are further complicated when Ben Silberstein divorces his wife because he has fallen in love with Hernando Courtright's wife, a nightclub chanteuse named Rosalind. Hernando and Rosalind divorce and Ben and Rosalind will marry. Hernando Courtright, a little upset, 
not too keen on sticking around the Beverly Hills Hotel, he instead buys the Beverly Wilshire Hotel and will proceed to be Ben Silberstein's rival for the rest of time. Now, Ben Silberstein and Rosalind, the new wife, don't last that long, and Ben knows ahead of time that he is going to divorce her lickety-split. Ben will decide at this point to move his official residence to Florida to avoid all of those pesky communal property laws that occur in California. At this time, Ben will meet and marry another lady named Bonnie Edwards, who, in her life up to this point, has been married and divorced a bunch. The most notable of her previous husbands, Playboy Tommy Manville, who is the asbestos heir and tabloid darling of the time. I guess the hearts chose well in this particular pairing, Ben and Bonnie, endure to the end. Bonnie will become beloved by the staff and community of the Beverly Hills Hotel. Bonnie and Ben will spend most of their time living and working in the hotel. Taking this from Dominic's writing now in Beverly Hills Q. Silberstein was always referred to as Mr. S by the staff, so the guests would not realize he was the owner. To the surprise of all, he never accepted large groups or conventions, as the other big hotels did, and he was dedicated to preserving the country club atmosphere that made the Beverly Hills such a famed gathering place for film stars, visiting royalty, and the power elite of Hollywood. But he never lost his abrasive manner. One morning at breakfast in the coffee shop, General David Samoff, president and chairman of the board of RCA, said to Silberstein, I spend so much time here, you should give me a discount. I'm thinking of charging more for people who stay here too long a time, replies Silberstein. Ben and Bonnie, living at the hotel, running the hotel, but remember, Muriel and Seema own the hotel. They own the shares, and these two sisters are competitive. Muriel makes, according to her father, the real match. She will marry a Detroit boy, Burton Slatkin. His family runs a jewelry store. Everything is fine. Well done, Muriel. Ben is not worried about Muriel, his eldest in the least. She's married well, stamp of approval. But Seema's growing up too, and by 1962, Seema has graduated from Michigan State with a psychology degree, and she has fallen in love. She has fallen in love with a man named Ivan Boski, and his family does own some brass rail restaurants, but Daddy Ben, unlike Muriel's matchup, does not approve of Seema's matchup. Daddy Ben thinks that Ivan is a bum and a ne'er-do-well, and he will amount to nothing. He is a middle-class loser. He is desperate to prove himself, and a rich wife like you will do it. This is Ben's fear. Additionally, Seema's friends don't really like Ivan either. They call him a hippie with a backpack and a toothbrush in his pocket. Seema and Ivan are 23 when they marry. Ivan, at the time, is studying for the bar and serving a clerkship for a judge, who is also a relative of the Silbersteins. And even though Ivan is working 18 hours a day, he will call Seema every hour. Seema feels like she has found love from someone unattainable. Quite an auspicious start. 
Seema and Ivan marry in 1962. The couple moves to New York City in 1966. And there, Seema is living in the city with her husband. They have four children. They live in a very sweet Park Avenue apartment that her father, Ben, will pay for. And where Muriel shows herself a little bit more publicly in the world, Seema maintains a little bit more privacy. She doesn't quite crave the spotlight, quite like her sister. In 1975, Ivan Boski will start his own brokerage. He does this with $700,000 of Seema's money and a business plan that essentially bets on outcomes of corporate takeovers. You could think of Ivan Boski as a pirate. While Ben is mostly ignoring Ivan, Ben really does love Muriel and Bert. Bert is the son he never had. And in 1973, Ben has made Bert Slatkin the president and chief operating officer of the Beverly Hills Hotel. Muriel and Bert in their marriage do have two sons. And Ben would like his grandsons, who have received degrees in hotel administration, to carry on the legacy of running the Beverly Hills Hotel. Dominic will write some of Muriel's words here. Muriel says, My father was always disappointed with my sister's choice of husband, Muriel told me when I first contacted her. She is an attractive woman in her early 50s, dark-haired, with a svelte figure of whom a friend has said, quote, What's on Muriel's mind is on her tongue, unquote. Muriel is now continuing, I was not my father's favorite, as people say, but my father approved of my husband and despised Ivan. I was always the peacemaker in the family. And I would say to my father, don't make Seema miserable because you don't approve of her husband. Continuing from Beverly Hills Coup, a public indication of the low esteem in which Ivan Boski was held can be inferred from Sandra Lee Stewart's book, The Pink Palace, a gossipy history of the hotel published in 1978, a year before Ben Silberstein's death. In the book, Ivan Boski is never mentioned by name, and his wife is dismissed in these non-prophetic words, quote, Silberstein's other daughter, Seema, now Mrs. Seema Boatsky of New York, is not involved in the hotel, unquote. The name Boski is even misspelled. Muriel and Bert, with the blessing of Daddy Ben, do take over the hotel. They will take a little property at the hotel and build a show palace of a home. This couple is riding high, living in Beverly Hills. They have a fortune, a hotel, a sweet new mansion. Life is great. But Muriel never really makes her way into the upper set. Dominic writes about it this way. Quote, with a fortune, a mansion, and a hotel behind her, Muriel Slatkin had more credentials than most to make it as a social figure in Beverly Hills. She was never asked to join the Amazing Blue Ribbon, the ultimate distinction for women of social achievement in Los Angeles. But she had a double cabana at the Beverly Hills pool where she entertained important visitors for lunch, and she always occupied the same table in the celebrity-filled polo lounge. Her parties at home, famous for the extravagance of the food, were duly reported on in the society pages of the Los Angeles Times and Herald Examiner, as well as in the gossip columns of The Hollywood Reporter and Daily Variety. 
She took tables at all the major charity events and gave cocktail parties for famous writers, stopping at the hotel on their book tours. <laughs> she even had a brief film career, playing a San Francisco society matron in Alan Carr's movie Can't Stop the Music. When she became actively involved in the redecoration of the hotel, she was given an office near her husband's, and she had pink and green bordered business cards made up proclaiming her the proprietor of the Beverly Hills. The hotel became her principality, and every time she walked in or out of it, everyone, from the doorman on, bowed to her and treated her like a princess. Like her father, she was not universally loved, although her supporters are passionate in her defense. A complaint often heard about her is, quote, She's the type who's your best friend one day and looks right through you the next, unquote. However, like her or not, everyone in Beverly Hills took cognizance of Muriel Slatkin. So things are rolling on merrily enough. Until Ben will take ill and Muriel is visiting her father every day and contributing her thoughts to her dad that Seema could be doing so much more to take care of her father. The already legendary competitive sisters are now squabbling in a new way over the illness of a parent, and Ben will pass away. Bonnie, Ben's widow, will get an apartment on Sutton Place in New York City. Bonnie will also get an apartment in Palm Beach. Visiting privileges at the hotel, but no shares of the hotel. Remember, the shares of the hotel are divided between the girls, each get 48%, and that mystery 4%, it turns out, is left to Ben's sister in Detroit, named Gertrude and her two children. Bert and Muriel want the hotel, and they make an immediate effort to buy the 4% of stock from Gertrude. Gertrude, who would like nothing more than to sell those 4% of shares, make some cash, and get out of this sisterly competitive nonsense, makes her offer. Bert and Muriel balk at her price. This is coming from the Dominic Dunn piece here. Quote, that was a fatal error. Bert's tight, explained a close observer of the situation to me. He lost the expletive hotel because he's tight. When you're in a takeover, you don't quibble about money. If the old lady wanted a hundred bucks, you give her three. If she wanted a million bucks, you give her three million. That's what his brother-in-law did. Because who's going to step up but Ivan? Who, when Gertrude dies the following year, these shares go to her children her child, named Royal Marks, who is a concert pianist turned art dealer, is now in possession of those four shares. Ivan Boski goes to Royal Marks and says, what do you want? I'll gladly pay it, plus some. And no one really knows what that number is. But 1980, Ivan and Seema are the 52% owners of the Beverly Hills Hotel. It's a fun story, right? So things sit like this for a little while. Muriel and Bert are waiting for the other shoe to drop, but it doesn't. They have their marriage. They have their mansion. They're running the hotel. 
but the strain of this is causing their marriage to fall apart. Bert will move out. Muriel will get a young Chilean boyfriend. This causes a rift with the children. And Bert's still chief operating officer until one day in 1985. No one knows what causes this to happen. The rumor is that Ivan got tired of Bert and Muriel trashing Ivan's reputation around the hotel. Another rumor says that Muriel said something that went too far in one of those conversations. But alas, whatever it was, Ivan, who has had controlling interests now for five years, comes to California. He gets his personal suite, suite 135-36. He will call all the employees, even the ones that are scheduled off that day, into a meeting in the Crystal Room. The Crystal Room is the largest ballroom in the hotel. And at this meeting, Ivan announces that he is now the president and chief operating officer of the Beverly Hills Hotel. And Bert is out. And there is a new general manager named Aldoberto Strada, who previously was the president of the Princess Hotels chain. Bert is given the title of chairman of the board, but Bert effectively is no longer in charge of anything. To add insult to injury, Muriel is stripped of every perk. Gone is her office. She is only welcome as a guest at the hotel, and that means that she would need to pay just like any other guest at the hotel. Her double cabana that has been reserved, gone. Now, of course, she can still rent it by the day if it is available. Her permanently reserved table at the Polo Lounge, gone. Her charges in the drugstore of the hotel will no longer be paid by the hotel. Muriel is so embarrassed, she will hide out for six weeks and see no one, except the new Chilean boyfriend and a few close friends, but... This is the scandal of Beverly Hills. Now, Muriel and Bert still married, but not happy at all in their marriage. But they find some solidarity as they will team up together to hire a pack of Washington, D.C. lawyers to protect their interest in the hotel. Dominic Dunn calls Muriel Slatkin in Beverly Hills. This is into 1985 to ask if she would see him if he flew out which she will never make the appointment. She reschedules a bunch, but they never actually meet. But in one of the arranged phone calls, Muriel says this to Dominic Dunn, quote, I love my sister. I don't understand why she's doing this to me. She is humiliating me. She has taken away everything. I don't even get a 10% discount anymore, unquote. But Muriel goes on and reflecting on their childhood, Muriel says, this is terrible, y'all, quote, my sister was heavy and not as popular as me. I'm not going to become bitter about it. My sister's the culprit and she wants to annihilate me, unquote. It's hard to see where these two went wrong, huh? So Dominic Dunn, since Seema's not talking and Muriel is not talking, Dominic Dunn will turn to the cousin the previous 4% share stakeholder, Royal Marks, who, by selling, started this whole war in the first place. Dominic calls him, this is so great, at his art gallery in New York. 
and identifies himself by name and magazine. And Royal Marks replies, I am not interested in a subscription. So Dominic Dunn is writing this article. It is published in February 1986, but there's a whole fallout of what happens with the hotel. So here is the rest of the story. Later in 1986, the Beverly Hills Hotel is sold to Marvin Davis, which will settle the feuding sisters division, leaving them both pretty wealthy, but never speaking again. With inside of a year, Marvin Davis will sell the Beverly Hills Hotel to the Sultan of Brunei, adding it to his property collection. There's a lot of uh, controversy around this, which is not the focus of today's story, but really a good story nonetheless. But what happens with our feuding sisters? They are both now rolling in money and furious with each other. Most of their years after that are fairly quiet, at least when it comes to what's reported in the press. Muriel, hard to find out much. She does pass away in August of 2017. She's buried at Hillside Memorial Park. Her husband, Burton, is pretty scrubbed as well from the internet. Her children are. Think the type of money that you have the ability to absolutely monitor everything written about your family and pay someone to make sure your names are not in the papers. Seema and Ivan, on the other hand, Ivan, kind of a legend. Ivan will visit the most expensive restaurants in New York, and his uh, move is to order every dish and take one bite of everything. There's a story on Wall Street that... The Gordon Gecko character from the movie Wall Street is in part created on Ivan Boski. By the mid-1980s, Ivan, like what are you going to do with a hotel anyway, man? You got enough going on. Ivan's managing about $1.2 billion in stock portfolios. His company at the time of the takeover in 85, 86 is worth about $200 billion. Ivan's on the cover of Time magazine. Everything's going great. But in 1987, the Securities and Exchange Commission begins investigating Ivan for insider trading and all kinds of dirty deals. And although everything he's doing is illegal, it's not like he's the first guy on Wall Street who's ever done illegal things. But Ivan is the first dude that gets hung up for it. Ivan will cooperate with the SEC, and he will snitch on all of his dirty pals, ending up with a plea bargain and a sentence of three and a half years, as well as a fine of $100 million. Not bad for Ivan. He will get out of the slammer in two years with the provision that he is not ever allowed to look at a stock or security again. Ivan will never really redeem his reputation on Wall Street. Meanwhile, Seema, not accused with her husband, but she suffers fallout as well. She will be blackballed from many charity organizations. She is removed from the lists of important people. Seema will start shopping under an assumed name, Mrs. Gross. The New York Post is savage to her. Seema will send her employees out to buy newspapers. 
Seema and Ivan begin divorce proceedings in 1991, where Seema agrees to pay Ivan $23 million and $180,000 a year for life. Let me make clear to you, it was not the arrest or the crime or the jail time that killed the marriage of Ivan and Seema. Apparently, Ivan had been blatantly cheating on Seema for years. After the divorce, Ivan will remarry. They will begin practicing Judaism. Ivan will study at the Jewish Theological Seminary. And a cousin of his reveals that he is living in La Jolla as of 2012. Seema, for her part, is a millionaire many, many times over, buys a lot of homes. She writes a society column for a magazine called The Wag. She's been doing that since 2000. She has a lot of boyfriends, never remarried. There's an article from 2012 that talks about the 6,000 peonies on her property, as well as the Impressionist paintings that line the walls of her home. Some of these Impressionist paintings are out in public rooms of the home. Some are upstairs that only the family can view. By 2010, apparently Ivan and his new wife and Seema and all of their children do spend holidays together. They have forged a new familial relationship for the sake of their kids, and it appears like everyone's doing fine. And that, my investigators, is the tale of Muriel and Seema Silberstein, sisters who held the Beverly Hills Hotel in the palm of their competitive hands and the scandal that rocked Beverly Hills in the mid-1980s. Thanks so much for joining me today on Done and Done. I appreciate you sharing your time with me today, as well as all of the kind and generous feedback that you have given me for your ratings, for your reviews, for the kind emails. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. It means the world to me, and I can't tell you how grateful I am. Be sure that you are subscribed so you don't miss a thing. There may be an extra, extra bonus coming out, just because I'm so grateful for y'all. Thanks again for spending your time with me. We'll be back in our regular episode next Monday, circling back to the conclusion of Dominic Dunn's Warrior for Justice arc with the trial of Dominique's murderer. Until we meet again, have a tremendous week and keep on investigating, friends. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.